Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have a fantastic return guest, David Abbott. Dave is a pricing specialist. He helps companies uh, get fair margin and to maintain their profitability through uh, best practice. He runs a company called Insight Best Practice, and he is the author of the fantabulous book, How to Price Your Platypus. If you haven't read it, the title alone should be enough to entice you to get it. It's highly recommended. It's a global bestseller. And with no further ado, Dave, welcome. Hi there, Marcus. Uh, Lovely to see you again. Hope you're well. I'm fantastic. Thank you. I'm having so much fun. Dave, would you mind just reminding the audience a little bit about your background? 60 seconds. Yeah, sure. I've uh, got a typical mixed background. I've worked in industry in a number of roles, senior roles running companies from complete startups up to the UK divisions of uh, global uh, distributors. I've had some senior marketing roles in a variety of different companies. But of late, I've started to do two things, working for myself. Uh, So one part is I'm a portfolio marketing director. So I work usually one day a week with organizations that have not yet reached the point where they can afford a marketing director or want a marketing director, but they want marketing director skills. So I typically help them to develop and execute a marketing strategy and to build marketing competence within the organization. That's one half of what I do. And the other half is I talk about pricing. So I talk internationally about it, written a book about it, as you've said. I help organizations to go through a pricing process. And uh, yeah, and that's usually a lot of fun. Excellent. So today we're going to, uh, we're going to cover a lot. Do you mind uh, if we first start out with what are the steps in the pricing process, and then maybe break those down? And it's going to be a build on what we spoke about last time. Sure. When I take an organisation through a pricing process, it it starts with the the pricing philosophy. I'm sure we'll come back to that and talk about that in a little bit more detail. So I'll save that for the moment. So understanding the current pricing philosophy and what the the different options are. Then we go into an analysis section where we understand where margin really comes from within the business, how value is perceived by by their customers, what the different types of buy behavior is for the different audiences that they're selling to. Take all of these things together, and that gives you a lot of data about what your pricing options might be. That all feeds into some decisions around the the pricing strategy that you're going to adopt, things like premium pricing or commodity pricing or volume pricing or whatever it might be. But um, uh, what pricing strategy you're going to adopt, and once you've decided on that, then you get into the tactics and the communication of pricing. So things like bog-offs or precision or the typical things that you, you, you see. Most organizations, when they're thinking about pricing, get stuck in the tactical area. They don't think about anything else at all. And a hell of a lot of organizations, when they're trying to do some kind of promotion, it's price that they use of the promotional tool. It'll be a discount or it'll be, as I said, a bog off, something like that. And price often seems to be the only tool that they think that they can use to influence buyer behavior. Well, it's often a very blunt instrument. And if you're using it tactically like that, without a real understanding of 
what customers really buy, then uh, often you're creating a rod for your own back and you're educating buyers to shop around and also to wait until you're desperate enough to have some fireside sale or a fire sale. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I, it, it can even get worse than that. I've come across at least three organizations uh, just recently where discounting becomes habit forming. And yeah. they'll have somebody, perhaps coming into a trade counter or whatever it might be, but they'll have somebody coming in who wants to buy something at whatever price, you know, a hammer. They pick a hammer off, uh, off, off the rack, go over to the, uh, the trade counter, say, I'd like to buy this hammer. There's a £5 uh, price on it. And the person behind the trade counter says, oh, we can offer 10% off those. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I saw your reaction. You know, you had the sale. You had the sale at the full price. You didn't need to give another whatever percentage away. And when it becomes habit forming, that really, really eats into operating profit. What's the psychology that drives that kind of idiocy? Sorry, discounting habit. <laughs> uh, it's it's a desire to please the customer. I think. Now, and it's conflating good customer service with discounts, as if the only way that you can please the customer is, we'll discount everything left, right, and center. And I've seen businesses go from, in the past, uh, from 10% operating profit down to 1% operating profit, simply because they get into this habit of just continuously discounting everything. So just focusing on the, the tactical element of pricing and using that for promotional purposes. It works. It's, uh, it's not that you should never do that, but it shouldn't be the only thing that you do, and it certainly shouldn't become a habit. And it shouldn't be the first thing you do either. No, absolutely right. Agreed, yeah. We're in business to make a profit. If you just give away margin consistently, then frankly, you have to work incredibly hard in order to just keep your nose above water. We touched on this last time. You were talking about it with regard to gross margin and, you know, uh, with myself regard to net margin. But a hell of a lot of people within business, the ones at the front end who are offering these discounts, don't appreciate just how big an impact that discount has. Now, if something's £100 and they're offering a fiver off it, it feels to them that, oh, yeah, it's only a fiver off £100. There's still £95 that we're getting. But if the net margin was £7 or £8, you've just given the bulk of your operating profit away. So can you define for the audience operating profit, net margin, and gross margin so that we're clear and understand that difference? So let's, for ease of description, let's assume that uh, you've got £100 per sale. You've got to go out and physically buy the goods. And there are some transport costs to, uh, to bring them into the company. So by the time the goods have landed, you've, used to, uh, you've spent £40 to, uh, to get those in. So that £40 comes off, uh, out of the £100. What's left is the, the gross margin. So you've got cost of sales, cost to get the goods in, and uh, the difference, the other £60 is then the gross margin. Out of that gross margin, you've then got all of your other costs. You've got the marketing costs, you've got the, the building that you're in, the rent rates, the utilities, you've got the wages of the people who are then going to handle everything and move things around and do things with them. And they're saying uh, you've got all of those operating costs are then subtracted. So let's say there's £50 worth of operating costs. You've now got £10 left 
and that's your operating profit. Okay, and is that net profit? That's net, yeah. Right, okay. And that's so, very simple. You know, that, that ignores all sorts of stuff like interest and depreciation and, you know, whole tax, a whole bunch of other things. That, that's just basically from an operating point of view. Excellent. Okay, so you've got the cost of buying the goods, you've got the cost of running your operation, mm-hmm. and all of that you have to carry. And then what's left, you can play with as margin. Just because five pounds off doesn't seem like a lot of money in the grand scheme of things, it could easily be a 50% of your margin if you're operating, as Dave said. Let's now look at pricing philosophy. So uh, you talk about three, uh, you can sell three things. Talk us through what they are. Yeah, it's almost a trick question. I've asked this of audiences uh, before. So uh, tell me what you sell. And and either they talk about the, the specific product or service or they they talk in more general terms. Well, we, we sell experience or we sell um, or expertise or we sell something like that. Really, you can only sell one of three things. You're selling your inputs, your outputs, or the outcomes. So inputs, your organizations that use a cost-plus approach to pricing are basically selling their inputs. So if, you, um, if you're a retailer in flooring and you, you buy in carpet rolls to a certain uh, price and you always add 35% onto every, every roll of carpet that you, you buy, then that's a cost-plus approach. And all you're, you're doing is you're treating the, the carpet as if there's the, it's this abstract thing that you, you just stick this margin on top of. What, what might be even more familiar is um, people like accountants or solicitors who typically charge by the hour. Or IT companies. IT companies, absolutely. <laughs> so if you, um, if you price by the hour, then all you're selling are your minutes. You're saying that it doesn't really matter how good or bad a job I do on any particular thing. If, if, if this takes three hours, it's three times you know, whatever my hourly rate is. So you're just selling your inputs, whatever they are. Outputs just means you're matching what everybody else does in the marketplace. You're, you're treating the thing that you're selling as an identical uh, fungible item that anybody can swap between. There's no difference whatsoever. So if everybody else charges £100 for this widget, we'll charge £100 for this widget. There's no difference between us. We're not concerned about the value that we create or anything like that. Which means you're a commodity and you will be treated as a commodity provider. Yeah. In general, yes. Not necessarily so. You might, you might decide that you've got some premium product or service, so you've mapped against uh, you know, the competition. You know what the average is, and you go a, a little bit above that because you think you're slightly better. You, know, you, you, you might do some things like that, but nevertheless, you're still just tracking the competition. You're assuming that there's no real fundamental difference between what everybody's doing. Selling outcomes means figuring out the value that you're going to deliver. What difference are you going to make to, to, to the customer? And, and then pricing accordingly. A lot of organizations that I come across, they have one pricing approach, and they apply that to pricing approach to absolutely everything that they do in every segment for every product group because that's how they price. And, what I, uh, and, a, uh, and a lot of them, it's either cost plus or match the competition because they're the easy ones. Now, you, you, you can do that on the, on the back of a piece of paper, you know, have a look what everybody else is doing or just add 30% to, 
uh, to the number. It takes more effort to figure out what value you're delivering. So frequently that's ignored. And what I try to uh, persuade uh, the companies I'm, I'm working with to consider is that value element. What difference are you going to make? And therefore, how, how might that adjust where you position your prices? Well, th- this speaks to a really fundamental truth about why buyers buy. People rent the outcome for as long as it delivers the result that they are hoping for. No one in the history of humanity has ever woken up and said, you know, bugger me, what I really want is a CRM system. What I really want is 3,000 feet of copper pipe. No one has ever or will ever buy on that basis. No. They're looking for an outcome. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the, the problem here is that many people in business come with filters and biases and uh, erroneous beliefs because they th- have beliefs like the customer is king, the buyer is always right, the man with the gold makes the rules. They have a perception of where they fit in their marketplace. And as you said, they're afraid to do the difficult work, have Mm. the difficult conversations. And so many salespeople are needy, desperate, skint. So essentially what they will do is anything to get the sale, but that makes them incredibly transactional. And makes them behave like a commodity provider. And if you look at the different types of seller, you have a product seller, product pusher, who basically sells an aspirin and no one wants to pay a lot for an aspirin. Then you have the authority and people come to them because they have a problem and they want a solution. But the problem is that most authorities authorities sound like everybody else. So they very quickly become product pushers and uh, sell on price. Then you have hero sellers, and they, people come to them for their strength because they want to be defended. And then you have the sage seller, and the sage seller people come to because they want some of that wisdom to rub yeah. off and for them to get a bit smarter. But too often, sales is separated from strategy. It's separated from pricing. It's separated from marketing. And all these different silos exist. And what no one or almost no one seems to really grasp is that buyers buy for their reasons, not your reasons. And it's your job to uncover that and work out what the outcomes are that they're renting. People don't buy your product permanently. It's always a rental of short, medium or long term. So I'm curious, why is it you think that so few organizations and so few sellers and leaders really concentrate on building a strategy based around the customer's outcomes and the value that you can create. I just think it's a lack of appreciation of what's driving the decision behind the sale. I was talking to um, uh, a few different audiences just recently, and I've mentioned the uh, the same thing uh, to each of them. I was just trying to think back over the last uh, few years with the clients that I work with where we've gone out to buy something significant, whether it's a, it's a client who needed a full rebranding process with another client who uh, was going to exhibit somewhere internationally and you know, so there was a big exhibition package of support that they needed or somebody else who wanted a new website. In every instance, we've gone out and uh, got at least three, three quotes, you know, three, uh, three companies who can deliver. Not once have we chosen the cheaper solution not once. Every single time we've chosen the company that seemed to get us 
understood what we were trying to achieve, what our goals were, and therefore we had confidence in, in working with them. Price was not the driving factor. But then I'll work with other companies on the other side of the table, the ones who are doing the pitch. And when you look at the pitch document, it'll talk about the functional stuff. Um, here's half, half a page on a little bit of our background. Now, you want, let's, pretend, let's say it's a website. You want a website. Uh, you want this particular content management system. We've got experience here. We can do that. It needs to be multi-language, blah, 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 blah. It's got to be this. And they'll list the requirements and demonstrate that they can deliver against them. Well, I kind of thought that that would be the case or they wouldn't be in business. My assumption is that every, every web developer out there who's been around for more than a few years is competent at developing websites. What I wanted to see inside uh, you know, the document or what I think the other party wants to see inside the document is something that says, right, these are your goals as a business. This is what you're trying to achieve. This is what uh, is important to the people who are going to be using your website. These are, you know, whatever. Just make it absolutely clear that we get you. We, we are on your side. We're here to help you achieve what you want to do. That doesn't appear in a hell of a lot of uh, documents. I think it's just people get focused on the detail. They've got a spec, so they dive straight into the spec and say, oh, yeah, tick, we can do that, tick, we can do that. Great, we've just sent a document back through to the uh, the customer with a tick against every uh, every single thing. We're bound to get the uh, the opportunity. <laughs> but they're ignoring that. Everybody else is also sending a document in that's ticked every single thing. Well, the research that came out of a company called Corporate Visions that, that they did in conjunction with Stanford is really very interesting. Mm. 60% of buying cycles end up in the status quo. So the mm. decision to do nothing is your biggest competitor, about 60%. 29.6% go to the vendor that disrupts their current preferences, stabilizes their view on the status quo, is able to demonstrate through a business case and through their questioning value. So there's a justifiable cause to move away from what they're doing. They create enough white space between what they're offering and what the alternatives are, including the status quo and the competition, and can allay anticipated regret and blame because uh, the, you know, the, uh, the preemptive buyer's remorse. That leaves 10.4% that go into a bid situation where the average win rate, and this was on the basis of 300 full CRM systems records, 10.4% went to bid, and the average win rate was one in four, yeah. which means that if you're playing the bid game, in effect, only 2.6% of pursuits will end up in a win if you end up in a bid. When you think about those hidden costs, because when we're talking about net profit, I'm curious to learn is how often do organizations really take into account the hidden cost when they're calculating their margin? Because in my experience, they almost never do. In, in my experience, they almost never do as well. I actually can't think of a single instance where what I'm going to say is not true. There may be companies out there that have done a good job at this, but I can't think of a single instance where I've worked with somebody where this isn't true. Generally. In the worst case, organizations, they, they, they've got a traditional P&L. 
so uh, profit and loss, and which looks exactly uh, like the um, uh, what we were describing earlier in terms of um, operating costs and the operating profit. Yeah, and it's it's basically a single column. That's our sales. That's our cost of sales. That's our gross margin. These are all of our overheads. That's our operating uh, profit or net profit, and that's it. And whatever that net profit figure is on the bottom, the assumption is that every single thing that we do has that net profit. Sometimes you do get some organizations that have a, a, a little bit more of a split. So they'll, they'll know that there are different gross margins for different product categories. But then they, they still don't apportion the rest of their costs appropriately. What I mean by this is, many years ago, uh, there was a company I was working for, it doesn't exist anymore, but but it manufactured um, physical monitors. Yeah, the big, big old... Did they ignore your advice? <laughs> no, it was... Uh, sadly, technology moved on and they didn't. It was the pricing thing. They, uh, they just kind of got left behind. But uh, they, they, they manufactured the big physical monitors. One part, uh, the, roughly 50% of the, their sales went into one market, process control, which got you big physical uh, machines that need uh, an interface. So a monitor goes into that. And the other half was fi- the financial uh, you know, city of London, people uh, trading in stocks and shares. And the gross margin in the financial marketplace, that was 28%. The gross margin in process control was 45%. So we knew that there was a difference there. And we loved process control. We'd do anything to get a process, process control customer. But when you actually looked at where all the activity within the organization took place, there were lots more process control customers than there were financial market customers. So many more salespeople, many more models, lots more R&D costs, lots more procurement costs because you've got many more different versions of, uh, of the product and the specific metalwork or whatever. When you added up all of those actual activities that went into making the particular thing, the net margin was 6% in process control, and I think it was 14% in, um, in the financial marketplace. We would give 10% discount at the drop of a hat in process control to get the business prior to me doing this analysis, because right. we thought with 45% gross margin, we got lots to give away. And it's really important that we, yeah, and we've still got 35% even after the, we've given 10% away. But when you actually looked at it net, every time we did that, we, we were giving money uh, away to the customer. And I, and I think that not enough customers, uh, companies, I should say, not enough companies do the work to really figure out what their genuine net margin is, either by channel or by customer group segment or by product group uh, or do all three, you know, they don't understand that, and therefore they make inappropriate decisions with regard to pricing and, and things like discounts. How often, when you suggest doing this difficult work, do you get pushback from leadership or uh, siloed vested interests? About half the time. The attitude about half the time is we... we we know all of this. We're pretty good at managing our costs and you know, we know where everything goes. And then those who have said that and then still decide, oh, well, we'll have a look. What can we lose? It's a day or two days worth of analysis. Now, it's not that big a deal. Let's go through it. What comes out at the end of it is generally quite a surprise. And what kind of reaction do you get at that point? 
Uh, well, it's uh, it's an oh wow uh, we, we just hadn't realised, uh, and it, it changes the thinking. Uh, at that point, they suddenly start to realise where profit is genuinely coming from out of the different things that they do, and how their decisions are impacting that profit. And particularly coming back to what we've said about things like discounts or rebate schemes or volume schemes or or whatever it might be. All of those things were put in place without really understanding the impact on the uh, uh, the genuine operating profit per channel of so, per group. So once you've done that analysis, what's the domino effect in terms of the rework of their systems, their sales process, their marketing? Do you have any examples of how doing the pricing analysis and the cost analysis has helped them to transform the operations of the business? The most extreme example, there was um, one company that I was uh, working with who were, they were in the planning stages to launch a service that had three levels. We went through all of this process and what became obvious to them was they, they couldn't make any money out of it because the thing that they thought they were going to make was going to be the most popular element was going to be, it would have a negative profitability. Uh, the thing with the highest profitability they didn't think anybody would buy. <laughs> and so we started to adjust what went into the different uh, levels of service. But by the time they got to the end of it, they looked at it and they thought, um, uh, we were making really false assumptions. It's better off not to launch this at all. Uh, and had they gone ahead with it, they, they'd have started hemorrhaging money in that particular area. So it, it can have real dramatic <laughs> changes. And th this is where ego has to be uh, put in check. Yes, uh, because what I've seen time and again is CEOs or chief marketing officers, um, they've got to be in their bonnet and they've thrown a load of um, emotional investment, money, time, resource. And they say, well, I'm taking a captain's call. If you have someone who does that, do something like put laxative in their tea uh, <laughs> and in the office because it's lethal. It's, it's the sunk cost fallacy. And so many businesses... Even right up at the very most senior level in the biggest companies in the world, you read stories of of companies pursuing the the one deal too far, the one merger too far, and it's because it becomes about ego, it's emotion, it's it's all of those things. So, one of the pushbacks that I often get when I'm talking about pricing and I go through all of the process and this kind of stuff is that, particularly in B two B marketplaces. Everybody thinks that, that we're all completely rational. In B2B, you've got professional buyers, uh, you've got uh, professional directors and owners of businesses, all of this kind of stuff. And yet, all the evidence is, is that they, they can be just as irrational, just as driven by emotion. They're just playing with bigger numbers. All adults are children trapped in adult bodies. That's the first rule of life. Second rule is ego is the enemy. and Never assume because it makes an ass out of you. Sorry, an ass out of you and me. The problem is that so often we are driven by these heuristics. Um, yeah. and we're driven by false beliefs. And the challenge is to have people in your team or advisors who will hold up the ugly mirror and will slap you around the head yeah. with it when you're doing something that is patently stupid. I think too often people are afraid to have challenge. And this is why 
I have another big B in my bonnet, which is why I think we need to recruit people who disagree with us at the interview process and people from very diverse backgrounds. Mm -hmm. um, because if we don't understand the different perspectives and we can't see the whole picture, uh, then we're only seeing a very thin slice. And people who make their, their business decisions on the basis of that thin slice very often, not always, but very often, will come unstuck. Yeah. So what's your advice uh, in terms of uh, building a team um, in, and the structure of that team uh, to ensure that not only do you have good sales and good marketing and great customer success, but it's all tied up around the revenue operations and the pricing? I think you're hitting on a really important point there. And uh, there is a vast amount of evidence uh, that uh, I, I keep reading about, the diversity of opinion. Uh, certainly at the senior uh, end of a company, is absolutely vital. But the temptation when people are recruiting is to recruit people like me. Because internally, it feels like you, you are perfection. <laughs> you get everything right. There is no better individual in business than you are. And therefore, you want more people just like you. I couldn't agree more. You, you, need, the, you need the people around you who are prepared to, to challenge and you've got to have a culture that is open to challenge. You know, if um, uh, there, there, are, there are examples in both politics and in business that you can point to where there are, there are leaders where it's, uh, this is how it's going to happen. Yeah, my way is the way. Uh, or it's the door over there. Sometimes that's important, I think. If, if the business is failing, then sometimes you, you need one person to make some strong decisions and to just make it happen. But as soon as you turn turn the business around again, then in order to grow effectively you, you and avoid these kind of mistakes, you've got to have that uh, diversity of opinion. And absolutely right, you know, it becomes important in in every aspect, including pricing, every part of marketing. People get their pet theories, or you now we've we've always gone to this exhibition every single year. We've always gone to this exhibition. You know, uh, if we if we don't show our face, the world will end. Uh, people will think we've gone bust or or whatever. You, you need somebody to turn around and uh, and challenge that. You know that might be true, or it might be just for one year trying something different. Maybe you hold your own virtual uh, exhibition yourself online, and you you still contact everybody that you would have contacted, but but you do it in an entirely different way, or you do something completely differently. But until you try these things, you know, you don't know what's going to work and what isn't. Well. This is really very interesting because um, I think this also points to another um, aspect of culture, uh, which is really critical, um, which is that uh, the best businesses that I know thrive on constructive conflict. They fight and they have stand-up rows and um, they just pitch their, uh, their position. And then they reach a decision and then everybody backs that decision. But without the, uh, the grit in the oyster, uh, you don't get the pearl. And mm -hmm. I, I think one of the problems is that what people are looking for is an easy life. But the easy life in business is generally the road to rack and ruin or mm -hmm. uh, to really disappointing levels of performance. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed uh, Tom Shodorf, who took Splunk from 42 million 
to 1.2 billion in five years. Wow. And the way he described their t- uh, leadership meetings and their management meetings was they were stand-up fights. And they would, they would regularly pitch in and people would be arguing. Um, and then th- you know, there would come a point where they need to make a decision and then people, uh, they made the decision. And ultimately it was on Tom's head as the sales leader so he made the you know he approved the final decision generally but it was through consensus what's really interesting is the love that people feel for him because he was tough but fair and he uh, i interviewed um a really fascinating character a guy called Ian Dodds who in the 1970s all the way through to the 2000s was responsible for turning around businesses um, so he turned around all of ICI's crappy factories that were dying on their ass. And uh, he went, took them from being worst performing to the best performing uh, in the company. And then, um, you know, 30 years of doing this. Um, and the thing he said is that you have to manage inclusively. And this is the other thing about diversity. Uh, diversity without inclusion is just simply uh, giving people an opportunity to read from the menu. They need to actually be able to sit down and eat the meal and enjoy it. And without ma- inclusive management, where everybody has a voice, then you really do have a problem. And I think part of the, the feedback loop that we need to ensure is that uh, we need to be speaking to customers and we need to be speaking to users in particular so we understand the true value. And this is where marketing and revenue, revenue operations and product developers uh, need to be in touch with the customer. They need to hear from them. But so often they're just divorced from it and they're just they're spreadsheet jockeys in an ivory tower. So what, what have you been able to do in terms of help people to shift their behavior away from that siloed thinking by the analysis? Uh, talk about value uh, and the approach to that uh, in a moment, but I'll just um, touch on something that you've uh, said there. Because I, I, I agree with you. You want that diversity of uh, opinion on the board. I've not come across companies yet where they've had the stand-up fights, but yeah, that's, that's great. If they've got a mechanism for uh, that being productive, that's absolutely fantastic. The, the one thing I'd add to what you said there before I move on to uh, figuring out value is that um, it's a little bit like uh, the UK um, uh, government. There's got to be cabinet. I can't think of the right word. What, what, what's agreed in cabinet is backed up outside of that cabinet meeting. Uh, because I've worked in companies where they've had those tough discussions, they've reached an agreement. The CEO has has done exactly what you're just describing, heard all the inputs and said, right, okay, heard everything. This is what we're going to do. And then individual members have come out and immediately started undermining the decision because they hadn't quite agreed with it. You know, they they had a slightly different opinion. And that that just creates havoc inside an organization because nobody knows. If you've got that kind of process, then the people who are party to it, they've got to come out and they've got to back up the decision. They have a responsibility to back up that decision when they come out. But uh, just moving on to the uh, the value thing. So uh, how how do you then pull all of this together and actually figure out what uh, what value really means for the customer and avoid all the spreadsheet jockeys, as you, uh, you said? Again, there's a process and there are a number of steps that you can uh, go through. The first is to clearly understand what the criteria are that drive the sale. By that, what I mean, you've got a, you've got a customer there. They're going to choose between you and somebody else. So they will have in their head a number of criteria that they will use to make that decision 
whether they're going to buy from you or the competition. And that might be specification, it might be availability, it might be quality levels, it might be, there'll be a list of things, it might be the colour, whatever. It depends upon the uh, the product or the service, but they've got that list of criteria. Now, this comes back to something you were just uh, saying a little bit earlier. A lot of people stop at that point. They, they assume that that's the bit of knowledge that they, they need. But in the same way that you're saying that nobody really wants a CRM system, what they want is what the CRM system does for them. Now, I want to drill down a little bit deeper. You know, I think it was I think it was Drucker who once said that nobody wants a quarter inch drill bit. What they want is a quarter inch hole in the wall. Absolutely. But I would go further. I'd say nobody wants a quarter inch hole in the wall. They want a quarter inch fixing. But nobody really wants a quarter inch fixing. What they want is a uh, a hook for a picture or a shelf. But nobody really wants a hook uh, or a shelf. What they want is, you know, the, the, this picture is uh, some fantastic memory, or the shelf is creating space within the home. So you've got these list of criteria, but what I then want to do with the, the organisations is, is ask the so what question. So specification, well, why do they care about specification? Well, because of this. Why do they care about that? Well, because of this. And keep drilling down until you you reach that really fundamental bottom line benefit that they are deriving from it because now you're starting to understand what makes a difference to the the customer and now you're you're starting to be able to communicate those benefits back to them when you are actually selling to them so yeah that that's just one spin-off from this so you don't just talk about the specification you talk about what this really means to them having done all of that on each of the criteria that you've identified you can then weight them because not all the criteria are equally important. Maybe specification has got to be a 10 out of 10. You'd score that 10 out of 10. But quality, for some reason, is 4 out of 10. Or you know, availability is 9 out of 10. So you weight each of them, and then you score how well you perform against those criteria and how well the competition does. Mm-hmm. Multiply the, your score with the, uh, the weighting, and you get a number, which is a proxy for value. But because you've done it against you versus the competition, you can see how your perceived value compares to the competition's perceived value. And you can then map that on, on a chart where you've got the perceived value on one axis and you've got the actual amount, you know, the actual price being charged on the other axis. And generally, there are some real surprises that come out uh, when you do that. I was working with a software company who had a bronze, silver, gold, three levels of, you know, good, better, best level of uh, software. And all they could sell was the bronze. So like 98% of all of the sales was the bronze. And if you've ever worked in software, 99.9% of the development is, it's one thing, you know, which is the gold. And it gets defeatured to create the silver and the, uh, the, the bronze. But all the development cost is the, the, the product. Really, what they want to sell is silver and gold in order to recoup those, you know, because clearly you get a greater margin on those. So we went through this process. We understood what the perceived value was. And when we looked at it, there was almost no difference in perceived value between the bronze and the silver. And yet the silver was a third more expensive. So guess what? You know, the customers, they, they encountered this. Their subconscious did this comparison between bronze and silver. I thought, oh. No brainer, it's bronze. And once the subconscious had made that decision, it wasn't even thinking about the gold anymore. So, so we eliminate the bronze level. No, no. What we did was 
we changed the value proposition for each. So we had, now that we understood what's creating the perceived value, we moved the silver further away from the bronze, and then we increased the price of the bronze considerably. Bronze went up £18, silver £2, and gold £15. And, and that created a much more kind of internally logical progression from bronze to silver to gold, to gold and 20 30% of the sales is moving up into the silver and the gold. So you can apply it in that kind of circumstance where you've got a good, better, best, or where you're comparing yourself against the competition. I've worked with, with several organizations now, and they, they've looked at it, and, and generally their perceived value is pretty damn good. But for some reason, they're not charging as much as there's one uh, that I've, I've just uh, I'm working with right now. They repair a product. I'm not going to give any more details than that. You know, it's uh, they're confidential, but they repair something. And having gone through that analysis, they've increased their prices, and they're as busy as they've ever been. In fact, they're slightly busier than they've ever been. So that price increase made no impact whatsoever on sales because they already had a high perceived value that they were delivering. And they still remain slightly cheaper than the than the competition that they pegged again. But all of the money that they're now charging extra, straight on the bottom line. Fantastic to hear that. And it's also uh, encouraging because this is during the pandemic and in the uh, beginnings of the worst depression in economic history. Yeah. And they can still raise their prices. Fantastic. And actually, there's a point there that uh, about this because you know we talk about pricing, and um, and uh, you and I get this, but not everybody might appreciate it. But this is not about being trying to rip off the customer or doing something unethical. I talked earlier about the customer, uh, a company that I, I dealt with that um, had managed to reach the point because of discounted that they were down to one percent operating profit. Companies like that are vulnerable. Now, when something like the pandemic comes along or we have the Brexit, if Brexit creates a further uh, uh, reduction in our economic output, if the economy shrinks and whatever, you are vulnerable. company like that can easily go under, and that takes every one of those jobs with it. What I want to do is I, I want to help companies that are genuinely providing a real service to their client base to be remunerated appropriately, and then they can invest in jobs and you know they they can withstand these kinds of problems. There is no shame in making a good profit. I and agree. If you make a good profit, then you can focus your attention on servicing and serving your customers well. I've always maintained mm-hmm. in my businesses that we should charge premium and mm-hmm. have a few clients who we love to death, and we help them be as successful as possible. Now. The advantage of doing that is that you're not overstretched, you're not run ragged. And when things are tough, you can be there for your customers. When the pandemic hit, I started uh, going back to historical legacy customers who helped be successful in the past. And I offered that I was able to offer them support because I was doing fine. I mean, my business uh, throughout last year has done or throughout this year has done really well. And I had the uh, capacity to support those businesses. It rekindled 84 historic relationships. And I was able to support something like 120 different salespeople from 
these companies that were able to then take a you know get, get a reminder a refresher and many of them have done incredibly well during the pandemic i had people who i was working with prior to the pandemic and none of them were below 140% of quota the range was typically 140 to 220% those companies that i started working with during the pandemic all of them managed to turn their businesses around and uh, see not only growth, but also massive increase in profitability. And I couldn't have done that if I was living hand to mouth on you know, 4% margin. So again, I think you do your customers a disservice if you deviate from the idea that you should make good profit, because mm-hmm. you can keep reinvesting that, you can invest in other jobs, you can invest in technology, you can invest in training. And also, when times are tough, you can help your customers. So don't ever be ashamed of making good profit. Absolutely agree. And the, it's, it's just made me think there are, there are some people who operate in a commodity marketplace. And if you're in a commodity marketplace, and typically that means there's a large amount of competition and there's almost no, nothing that a customer can use to tell the difference between one company and, and, and the rest. Now, you, you all do broadly the same thing. And if you're all doing broadly the same thing, uh, then the only discriminator that, that, that is left for a customer to use to choose between one or another is price. So a typical, uh, no, you're pulling a face, that you know, there are some, there are some business, uh, yeah, uh, industries which tend to be a, you know, a, a big commodity. And I, I'll, I'll quote you a couple. But one is print. You know, you'll, you'll talk to people who, who do print for a living and there are lots of them. And um, if all you do is just the same basic stuff, you know, you print leaflets, you print booklets, you print business cards, that's your model, you don't do anything else, then yet yeah, you're going to get compared on price. But I've spoken to at least two printers who have found a way to take the, the core competence that they've got, use the, the volume part of the business to basically pay for the machines that every they and every other printer has, you know, and then they've found areas where they can find some means of differentiation to then generate margin. So one of them, for example, has cornered the marketing posters for nursing homes that stimulate people who have dementia. Who'd have thought that there was even a market for something like that? But, but they lead in that. There's another printer I came across recently who got into secure document printing, where, where the document absolutely has to be right and cannot be wrong under any circumstances and must be printed correctly, must be delivered in wherever. Yeah, so legal documents or passports or things. So part of the business is still commodity, but they've managed to find something that is non-commodity. One final example, there's a company I, uh, I know, they are electronic component brokers. And this genuinely is as pure commodity as you can get. Yep. They, they, they buy um, memory chips, say well, a Samsung memory chip. They buy excess from a manufacturer who doesn't need them anymore. They hold them in stock. And then one of 4,000 other lo- uh, brokers around the, uh, the world who, who've got a customer who needs some of these things will get in touch and will actually approach, God, hundreds, hundreds of people to say, have you got any of these in stock? And if you have and you're in stock, the only decision that they're going to use is what's the lowest price because functionally 
every Samsung, uh, Samsung memory chip is identical to every other one. Yeah. But given that that's what they do, you know, they've got links into the manufacturers, they've got links into other manufacturers, they, they're developing a service where rather than wait until a manufacturer has too few components and they need something in a rush, they're able to help the manufacturer who might be buying at a particular price to connect them with somebody else who they think might have some excess at a lower price. And they're, they're, they're acting as a proactive estate agent, if you like, uh, in between, and charging a margin for that, that service. And I think that's wonderful. They're, they're, based, they're taking their, their core competence and they're finding a way to add a new service that adds genuine value and allows them to charge an appropriate margin and get out of that commodity area. So if you if you find yourself stuck in the commodity area, you've only got two choices. You know, one is suck it up because that's the market that you've decided to be in, and the other one is find a way to add some value. You know, develop a new service into a new marketplace or whatever it might be, but find a value-added service where you can start charging appropriately. I've got three examples that break the belief that if you're a commodity provider, you should be selling at market rate and try and win mm. on price. Because I fundamentally believe anyone who sells on price is slitting their own throat. So the first one is, do you know these marketing promotional gifts? So branded key fobs and uh, pens and all that kind of stuff. Well, I had a client who did that and there were 4,000 companies in the country selling off four catalogs um, yep. all of whom sold exactly the same product. And we were able to give them something like a 12 to 15% increase in margin simply by the approach to how they sold and helping them to have a different conversation rather than just simply reacting to, oh, um, have you got this? How much is it? Finding out what the intended outcome was again. Yeah. Um, Coming back to what we said earlier, yeah. Absolutely. Second one is a printer came to me after having lost uh, their largest client who accounted for 48% of their revenue. And it, I mean, they were really on very tight margins. Within a year of working with us, we had them at 32% gross margin, which for print is unheard of. Yeah, um, very it was very good. Um, and uh, they uh, went from 300,000 to 3 million in three years. Mm -hmm. So they were making decent money. So what did they do that differentiated themselves from the other printers? Well, first of all, they sold instead of order took, which is a very different thing. They, did, they didn't do the quote and hope. They, again, focused on outcome. They focused on understanding what it was specifically that the customer valued. And what the most of the customers, they, they operated in the retail and FMCG space. So they were printing pop-up displays, those kind of things. So it's a very niche, but also extremely tight competitive market. And they were worked in partnership with the customer, thinking about how they wanted their customers to respond. They worked with the manufacturers, they worked with the retailers, and they acted as partners. So they added massive value. And the net result of that was, I mean, and do, do you know the ads that go on top of uh, petrol pumps? Yes. Uh, those kind of things. Well, they, they basically cornered that market. 
Um, and um, that, that, that tap. Yeah, that, that's another example of finding that niche, something a little bit different. I, I love it. Yeah. Sorry, carry on. The third one was an investment bank. Now, these guys basically sold the same electrons on a screen that everyone else did. Three mm-hmm. prices from Thomson Reuters or whoever. And they were normally the uh, first, second or third most expensive price. We doubled their sales three years in a row. In spite of the fact this was in the midst of the last Great Recession. And that was, around again, around proactively working with the, uh, the counterparties to understand what their strategy was and what they were trying to achieve instead of just being reactive. So it doesn't matter that you are in a commodity space. You can still make very good margin and you can drive incredible growth in spite of the economic conditions. But you have to take ownership and responsibility. You have to understand that if you're just passive, and you allow yourself to fall into the noise that's around you, then yeah, you're going to just fail like everybody else. But there is no reason for you to do it other than lack of imagination and lack of hard work. I think it's self-talk. You know, people, uh, I've spoken to some printers, and it doesn't matter what you try and suggest. You know, you start to brainstorm, talk about things, and what's about, oh, I've tried it, tried it. No, 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 tried that. Uh, it's there's there's nothing that can be done. We just make ten percent gross margin. That's it, or whatever the number uh, might be. But my, uh, my coach, my coach taught me a very valuable aphorism, which is you cannot teach someone something they think they already know. No, that's true. To summarise, I think the uh, the two core things that we're both agreeing on uh, with regard to this one is the more you can understand the customer and and make it clear that you are supporting their goals, the more confident they will be in you as a supplier, the more they will want to work with you, even at a higher price. And the the more you can find these niche little areas, like the the petrol pump printing or whatever it might be, the more you can find some things that allow you to get into a a market where you can differentiate, the more you can make a genuine margin. And there's, there's two good lessons there. I think for pretty well every business, just to just to stop and have a think. Now, how can we how can we really talk to the customer in a way in their language, in a way that really, really excites them? And, and what can we take that, that we're really good at and find you know, find something somewhere where we can differentiate using our skills? There's a process that I'd like to go through that helps us to understand what customers really are looking for. I think part of the problem is that so often companies are afraid to have those conversations with customers because they're, you know, they, they worry that maybe they'll be seen as being pushy or mm-hmm. they won't have, they don't have the right to have those conversations. And to that, I say complete bunkum. I think you need to understand the customer and the user and their intent. What I like to do is create a spreadsheet. And the the different headers are, who's the client? What sector are they in? What roles are we talking to? What is the job to be done by that prospect? What progress is the customer trying to make? 
what's their struggling moment? And I want them to describe it. And I want to understand the language that they use. What's the push that triggers their desire to even investigate change? What's the magnetism of what you are offering? So what is the appeal, the, the, the shiny object syndrome? Mm-hmm. And what's the anxiety that they have around changing? Yeah. What questions or objections are they likely to have? And what's the habit of their present solution? And if you start to look at things like that, then you start to see the world through the customer's eyes, through the user's eyes. And that's a very different proposition. One of the things that has always made me smile is how often um, in IT, technical support uh, tickets are raised because products were designed by engineers who didn't speak to the customer. Uh, You come up with a great idea and then you build it in the belief that people will come to you just because you built it. That's not the case. And if it, 40% of IT support calls are caused by engineering design faults, isn't that terrifying? No. And all you need to do is understand the customer and talk to them Yeah, a little bit more. If only. But again, this is why I think user groups um, and uh, having panels of customers, interviewing customers about what their real experience is. And the other thing that's really interesting, um, Salesforce uh, released their latest uh, research um, uh, this month uh, on my podcast, which I was extremely uh, grateful for. Um, And one of the things that they said was that companies that speak to unhappy customers have a six times faster product development cycle than people who don't. That makes sense. Hundred percent. Yeah, Dave. Can we? I know this isn't your particular area of specialization, but I, I, I'm getting the question a lot from uh, my tech clients and my network around how do we price appropriately within distribution channels. And I know you've got some thoughts on it, and I'd love to thrash out some ideas. So again, this is a work in progress for those of you who are listening. But tell me this. If you're going to go through a two or three layer distribution model, so it's you, a reseller, you, a distributor, who then um, manages sales through through Mm -hmm. resellers, what are the thoughts that you need to start with before you even contemplate going through uh, distribution? Really interesting question. Uh, I think the... You've got to understand the motivations at each step in the chain, you know, because you're now relying on potentially two other parties to achieve your goals. And the clearly one part of that will be what, how much money they can make out of what they're doing with you. So when you're sitting down and planning this, you've, you've, you've got to make sure that there's enough, uh, there's enough margin at each stage for the relevant party to to be more not just happy but but excited to work on this particular product or whatever it is but you've also uh, you've got to understand what it is that they're going to bring to the table too and what the cost of delivering that might be so for example you 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 might uh, you might go through the sums and sit down and, uh, and decide that um, uh, net uh, if we do it this way, each of us, well, no, gross. Let's say each of us gross makes about 30%, you know, by the time we've gone through the sums. But um, um, 
But we, we're the manufacturer. We've got R&D costs, which nobody else has. We've got major warehousing and whip costs. We've got this cost or that cost, whatever. So we've got some higher costs. The wholesaler, all they're doing is breaking volume. They're not doing any particular marketing. They're not doing any development or whatever. And then the, the final, the reseller, retailer, dealer, whatever it is, They've actually got to go out and employ a sales force who go out and meet the customers or they're doing uh, individual marketing in their, their territories or whatever it might be. There are different costs at, at each stage. And if you don't take that into account when you're developing this, uh, the, the channel levels, uh, pricing levels, um, you're going to end up with at least one part of it uh, unhappy. And at that point, it starts to, uh, to break down. So uh, it's not. This is an area where it it would be great to have a a simple formula. And mm-hmm. you know, when we're chatting before the session, yeah, that's. I want to be thin, Dave. Yeah, wouldn't it be lovely? <laughs> and, and there is a simple formula, but but I think you you do have to. You've got to put the work in on something like this. You've got to understand what's going on at each stage and what's going to make each party happy and motivated. Uh, and that, that just takes a little bit of uh, work and analysis and discussion. Well, the, there are different types of distribution model as well that we need to be aware of. You yeah. can have the manufacturer or the vendor and working directly with resellers. And those resellers can either be introducers, they can be transacting third parties, or they can just be implementation, or they can be all three. Yeah. Now, That therefore requires three times the thought process. You've got to put the hard work in. Mm -hmm. And I think people are afraid of doing the hard work. It's the same thing with compensation plans. I'm just in the throes of trying to get my head around a contribution-based compensation plan where Mm -hmm. the seller gets paid a commission for bringing the business in. But Marketing has contributed to it. The product development people have contributed to it. Mm. The customer success people contribute to it. And it's doing my head in, but I know it's important because if you don't do it like that, then you end up driving the wrong behavior. Because what I've seen that's caused my heart to stop on many an occasion is a compensation scheme that drives selfish selling and transactional thinking. I'm not interested in getting a transaction over the line. I'm interested in getting a customer who's going to be a customer in 5, 10, 15 years' time Mm -hmm. happy with delivering against their outcomes. The only way that I can really make sure that that is guaranteed to happen is that we're speaking to them on a regular basis, that they give us raw, unvarnished feedback, painful as it might be, that we fight and we challenge one another. We hold one another to account. Now, that's expensive to do that, but it's worth it. Sorry, go on. Expensive and sadly unusual. My experience of uh, these uh, multi-layer channels is that you don't tend to get much in the way of feedback coming back up, other than typically... Um, expensive too high yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's what everybody says all the time whether it's true or not you know so you want to really understand what uh, the customer needs are you want to really uh, well whatever it might be but you've got two layers between you and the customer i worked with uh, with one organization where um, uh, they, they were the manufacturer they sold through resellers 
so there was only the one layer. So reseller and then out into the uh, the customer. And um, and even then, even where there was only the one layer, they really struggled to help educate the, the, those resellers to help them to sell better because they had their way of doing it and and they were underselling the uh, the benefits of the, the 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 product massively and therefore missing significant opportunity. So they, they struggled with that. They never got any feedback back. They put in place it, they thought that the price was the only way to get <laughs> loyalty. And that means you've got to have volume discounts, you've got to have a rebate scheme, you've got to have these kinds of things. So they put those things in place. And all that meant was they stopped any new competition, uh, 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 not to them, but any new resellers who might have an innovative way of doing things or have a different approach from entering the market because the established guys could always use the volume breaks and the rebates to undercut anybody that was new and, and, and kick them out. So it's, it is incredibly easy to end up with something that functionally is working day to day. The, the goods are churning through, they're heading out, but it's suboptimal in many ways and it's really hard to fix. Well, this is why when you set your channel up, um, you need to understand that prices law applies. Um, mm. I, I've interviewed over 200 companies now, and I have yet to find an exception to this rule where two to four percent of the partners generate 40 to 60 percent of the revenue. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's not always profitable revenue. That's the other interesting thing, because very often they're giving these massive price breaks because they do fundamentally misconceive that it's about the price. In many cases, they have failed to agree upfront that the partners will allow the vendor access to the customers so that they can speak. They don't allow them to train their salespeople as if they are their own. Mm -hmm. And this, again, is a fundamental flaw in many channel uh, relationships. And they don't have a proper accountability process where at least once a quarter, but ideally more frequently, the salespeople are in front of the customer with the partner and the marketing people, and the executive teams, and they're listening to what the customer has to say, and they're getting that feedback loop. Now, I'm building channels around those principles as well, and it's hard. It really is so tough, but it's worth it. One thing that you didn't mention, there was exclusivity, and that's all always, I think, worth having the conversation over because, again, one of the things that I've, I've seen happen more than once, is the uh, the vendor puts a lot of effort into trying to create pull-through. They build a desire for their particular brand amongst the end user. They spend a lot of marketing money, but without exclusivity, there's always the temptation for the, the, the final part of the chain, the retailer or whoever it is, when the customer approaches them and says, uh, I want to buy one of the XYZ brand, if they've got an alternative, maybe they've sourced something themselves direct from the Far East or something like that. Yeah. If they've got an alternative that they can make a few more pounds on, it's so easy for them to say to the, the customer, well, uh, I can sell you that. 
I actually, I happen to have this here as well, which is identical in terms of quality. And I can knock a couple of quid off for you. That sale has gone. And the company will never know about it because it was just a, a conversation, you know. Uh, absolutely. My friend, Zach Seltz, who's just released his book on uh, growing your business globally. And he's built over a thousand distribution partnerships in 135 plus countries over the last 30 years. And one of the things that he does is he goes into territory having scoped out uh, potential partners and he picks the one that he wants to work with most. And then he negotiates with them a letter of intent that says over the next 60 days, you will have exclusivity in return for, and then he lists his conditions. Yeah. And those conditions include, you don't sell anyone else's product, but also, if we're going to work together, then over the next 60 days, you need to build this amount of pipeline. You need to arrange this volume of meetings to this qualification criteria or specification. Yeah. And if you do that, we will give you exclusive distribution rights. Yeah. Now, that's incredible. Yeah. He's still got partners who work with him from 30 years ago. In that kind of negotiation, there are, there's plenty of stuff that you can do to to make that uh, a really even sided deal. You know, uh, yeah. in ret- in return for all of that, we will come over. We will train all of your your teams. We will produce uh, marketing materials that uh, uh, that are unbranded, where you you through a, just a simple print run, you can add your branding onto uh, and just, localized. We'll yeah, localize it. We'll. Uh, We've got this fabulous uh, website, uh, which we can white label, and it will become your branded website in this territory. We can do this, we can do that, and we can do the other. The nice thing about that is, uh, is that once you start providing all of those things down the channel, you tie the channel in, because yeah. it's hard for them to then chuck all of that away and go elsewhere. Well, in Zach's case, he's been able to go into territory, help them establish a beachhead, and then expand dramatically and the vendor company has grown two three four five thousand percent off the back of it so less is more what you need to do is build a special forces unit of partners and you help them achieve their goals and make them wildly successful and then you get a win-win-win outcome there's a win for the vendor win for the partner and a win for the customer the point of the game is not to try and sign up as many possible uh, retailers, as you uh, as you can, the point is to sign up the number of retailers that is a, an appropriate number of retailers where you've got a really fantastic relationship, and both parties are working towards the same goals. Absolutely, and th- this again is the uh, the model: the special forces unit versus the army of conscripts. Yeah, I was speaking. I like that analogy. That's lovely. I was speaking to a distributor. And I asked them about Price's Law and how it fits. And they, did, they ran the analysis. And of 10,500 partners, 126 produced 50% of their revenue. Mm-hmm. But they had to have the footprint so that the vendors had confidence that they had the, uh, the reach, which yeah. is crazy. Because if they spent their energy on those 10,300 and uh, whatever it is, um, 74, that they were wasting on them to recruit another 126. 
everybody would be way more profitable and they could cut the amount of uh, wasted energy. Interestingly enough, I've just uh, joined the board of a company called White Rabbit. And um, what they do is they run AI analytics on your customer database and uh, then they go out uh, into the wider market and find the real reasons why people will buy or not. And the net result of that is that they can reduce the prospecting tariff by 90%. Yeah. 90% and halve the cost of sale. Yeah. Now, yeah. that kind of innovative thinking and that kind of innovative business process applied to a channel is breathtakingly powerful. So I'm very... Yeah, very good. Dave, we've reached the top of the hour. Yeah. um, And this has been incredibly illuminating. Um, I want to get you back on, on a round table um, Mm -hmm. with a couple of my former guests as well. Alan Sang is a specialist in negotiation. Tom Williams has sat on all three sides of the fence. So he's been a buyer, an executive, and a seller. Uh, And Jill Robbins who is uh, 26 years in professional procurement. And I think the four of you together could make for quite a spectacular uh, conversation. Would a you real be- gunfight. <laughs> That's um, fantastic. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, excellent. So, Dave, how can people get hold of you? I've got a website. Uh, you can, uh, the easiest way to track me down is probably to search for Platypus Pricing Speaker or How to Price Your Platypus, uh, the book. But my websites are davidabbottspeaker.com or insight-bp.co.uk. But if you uh, search for uh, David Abbott Platypus, uh, you're bound to find me one way or another. Excellent. Dave Abbott, thank you. It's been a pleasure, as always. Great to see you. Thank you. This is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful, insightful, practical, applicable, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And do go to Apple Podcasts and uh, scroll down just below the fold and give me a review, an honest review, a one star or a five star. Don't care what it is, but just give an honest review. I'd be very grateful. And in the meantime, If you want to get hold of me or you think you'd be a good guest or know someone who would be, email me at marcus at laughs-last.com or contact me through LinkedIn and connect us that way. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.